and gentlemen, boys and girls, Dying Times here. That's right, this is Kill by Kill, Friday the 13th. Greetings and salutations, Internet. This is Patrick Hamilton coming to you live, not from Camp Crystal Lake, but uh, what used to be a four-star hotel near Fashion Island in Orange County, California. And I'm recording from a bathroom because I'm a professional. That's how you do it. Okay? And welcome once again to Kill by Kill. This is the podcast that is dedicated to celebrating the least explored component of any horror film, the characters. We will unpack all the gory details of Friday the 13th Part 3D in the hopes that a character's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes we can make about them. And the person I bring along with me every single week to help me through this arduous journey is the one and only Gina Radcliffe. How are you doing, Gina? Uh, I'm I'm not in a bathroom in a in a four star hotel in Fashion Island. It used to be a four star hotel. Which Fashion Island seems like the setting for like a, one of those Barbie specials. <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly, it was featured a lot in the uh, seminal Orange County show, The OC. Quite often. That would seem and, appropriate. Yes, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, Guys, I'm so excited because we have our very first guest with us today. Please what? don't yell at him. Don't don't harass him. He's here for your entertainment pleasure. It is the one and the only Phil Gonzalez. How you doing, sir? Uh, I am. I wish I was in a bathroom right now. So <laughs> let's just let's get the recording over as soon as possible. I'm just going to leave it at that. All right. You know. Well, it, worst comes to worst, maybe you have a. A small plastic bottle you could have at your disposal, unless it's something else you have to deal with. Anything can fit in a small plastic bottle if you're creative enough, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Phil, uh, we like to ask people uh, when, they're, when they've come here, uh, what was your first experience with the Friday the 13th franchise? Growing up, horror movies were this kind of ever-present thing in my house and I was the younger of two children and my sister was always a big horror fan and my parents I grew up in the 80s so we sort of were there for the birth of the VHS like era when like we're, we're renting movies watching movies as a family on your TV was a very novel thing so whenever a movie would get rented you would uh, just sit down as a family no matter what it was and everyone would watch. And it didn't matter if it was a family film. It didn't matter if it was, for example, About Last Night. It didn't matter if it was <laughs> Jagged Edge or Sophie's Choice. The entire family would sit and watch these. And the only exception to that was horror movies because they knew that I was sensitive to horror. So they would always say, Philip, go leave the room. It's a horror movie. So in my head, it built up this like sort of mythology of what a horror movie was. Mm -hmm. uh, I had no idea conceptually what it meant. So in my mind, a horror movie was a film that was from the first image on screen until the end of the credits was just nonstop terror from the visuals, from the sound. I, that, that's all I could imagine. So when a horror movie was playing, I would run out of the room, shut my door and just hide. And it wasn't until... I was probably a young elementary school student that I started watching these movies that my sister would rent, and I'd watch them kind of from behind a door, behind my fingers. And the Friday the 13th movies were definitely a part of this, but 
it was really part six that made the biggest impression on me because mm. that was the beginning of my let's spend the night at friend's house age era. And that was, I think part six was 1986. And so it sort of lined up with the, you know, a movie came out in 86. It would probably come out on video in 87. So I was about the right age to start renting horror movies with friends. And, uh, and so uh, part six was kind of the one that, that taught me what a slasher movie was like the beats. And by that point in the series, uh, you, it had really sort of started following more or less uh, just an outline uh, with the characters. And it really was just sort of living the tropes that we all know a horror movie to be. So I would say uh, Friday the 13th part six was the, uh, was the, the seminal Friday the 13th movie for me. Was that the one with the, the Alice Cooper song in it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the and the and the weird and the weird like cameo appearance by uh by Ron Palillo who played Horshack, yes. who who shows up for the first five minutes. Jason kills the shit out of him and and he's just never mentioned again. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know that I would count as stunt casting, but it is a little weird. It is. I mean, the entire ba- we will get to this because I, I it's almost an episode into itself because it asks the question when your friend at the insane asylum asks you to unbury a body to make sure it's dead what do you get in return for that that is a pretty big question (laughs) and we will answer it when we get to part six but that's interesting phil i think a lot of uh people who enjoy horror feel that it's the forbidden for at least a little while and then in order to conquer it they they have to almost mainline it in order to understand it. Well, and that's and that's why I think series horror, uh, these franchises are so perfect because they all tend to start out as serious attempts to make horror movies. But if you if you skip to the middle of a franchise, that's usually a good place for like a kid to start out because it's yeah. lost a lot of its impact. It's lost a lot of the visceral quality, the uh, the intensity, and you have something that's practically made for television. And they're standalone movies. I mean, they are, there's really no, after the second one, there's really no plot thread to follow anymore. Oh, come on. Tommy Jarvis <laughs> is such a major, uh, if you don't, if you don't pay attention to every second of Tommy Jarvis's fantastic story, you're, you're, you're just going to be lost without a map in the Friday the 13th series. It's just I mean, not going to make any sense. Exactly. They're pulling that thread all the way through on Tommy Jarvis. There's so many things that are brought up in part four, his love of butts, uh, how, how he likes to bury his head in a pillow when he sees someone naked. That always pays off. In the other two movies, that's a constant thread with him. How, how difficult it must have been to grow up looking like child actor Corey Feldman. <laughs> and then suddenly not looking like child actor Corey Feldman. <laughs> Do we really know how Corey Feldman looks? I mean, now? I mean, like, not does good. Does he show up on film? I mean... <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure it's easy enough to find out. I mean, he, I mean the, the, the actor who plays... Tommy Jarvis as an adult is considerably better looking than than adult Corey Feldman, who has that weird kind of child actor thing where they have like an adult body with like a child's head on top. Oh, well, you know, what are you going to do? He, it's it's hard when you peak early. I was going to say Tommy Jarvis has been played by three actors, so he's kind of a modern day uh, James Bond. And I think that's the only time you're going to hear that. <laughs> Well, no, you're not going to hear that comparison. You are going to hear that comparison again, because at the beginning of part six, Jason walks out 
to the James Bond theme and throws a knife at the camera. Um, it's a little self-aware by that point. Just yes, a, but just I, a think tap. It, I think it has to be because the the era had changed. Oh, yeah. But before we get to that era, let's let's ratchet back here to Friday the 13th Part 3D, which came out in 1982. And just to review, here's where we stand with the people who are alive so far in this movie. There's Chris, who is our designated final girl. She's about as developed as a freshly snapped Polaroid picture in terms of character. There's Rick, who is 210 pounds of big league chew molded around a horny skeleton. We have Ali, who's the leader of the Apple Dumpling Gang on motorcycles. Chuck and Chili, who are voted most likely to give their opinions on the type of high you get from indica rather than sativa, even though you didn't bring it up. And finally, the, the first subjects for this episode, and that's Andy and Debbie, our designated fuck couple. Uh, why don't we go to Gina first? Gina, what is your impression of Andy? Andy is also a bit of a uh, a jokester, like Shelley. Um, I cannot, they're, they're roommates, it is established. I cannot imagine how insufferable it must be to, to be in the same room with Andy and Shelly for more than 15, 20 minutes. There's, there's a lot of alpha mailing between the two of them, you know, which Shelly loses every time. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Andy, he, he, he's, a, he's a big, big, charming goofball. He you know, almost drops a yo-yo in his pregnant girlfriend's face while she's, uh, while she's laying out because it's a 3D movie and you have to put something in the camera every five minutes or so. Yeah, Andy is the designated thing pusher. He pushes a joint, a yo-yo, apples, his insane libido, anything he can get at the camera constantly. Uh, Phil, your thoughts on Andy? I really like Andy, uh, mostly because he encourages Shelley uh shelly is one of those uh very divisive characters who people tend to have fond memories of or not fond memories of and i mean when you mention part three it's oh is that the one with with shelly and if you say yes people either like make horrible faces or they're like oh you know shelly because we i mean we all knew shelly in college we all knew the guy or we maybe were the guy for a time who tried really hard, who didn't know where he fit in. And I really like that Andy, Andy could just blow Shelly off, but as a human being, he understands that you've got to get Shelly out. You've got to introduce him to people. You've got to give him a chance. He knows that he's really a nice guy who's just trying too hard. And I have to admire that as a person. I also love the fact that they set up his untimely end by showing him randomly doing physical things for no reason. It's his chick, <laughs> yes. But they make him a very physical character. He's constantly like doing things with his hands, doing things with his body, entirely to set up what's going to happen to him at the end of the at the end of his his short stint on this planet Earth. It's Chekhov's handstand. Basically. Yes, Chekhov's handstand. <laughs> because you see it once, you see it twice, and thrice is a, a very cutting affair. Um, yeah, now, you yeah. guys, you, you brought up the 3D. Uh, have you guys talked about the 3D yet? We've talked about the 3D at, at length in so far as it was the craze at the time. It was certainly designed to get people back into movie theaters okay. and away from their cable box and VHS. One thing I was fascinated by, and it shows, it's so, it's so obvious, especially with Andy uh, in this movie, is they this was a 
a brand new technology invented for this movie. 3D had never been filmed this way with this, not invented like they, the way the setups, the, uh, the the camera shots, 3D had never been filmed this way before. This was the first like test run for this camera, this whole setup. And so you're watching this actor surrounded by technical people, surrounded by the the, the crew, surrounded by your director who are watching you so closely. There's no way to do anything naturally, physically, in front of this camera because it has to be done so precisely that and if you screw it up they have to go back and reset everything up it takes it took hours for them to do a yo-yo shot for them to do the joint shot for them to do anything that required something coming at the 3d camera which is why everything looks so stiff and weird yeah I, the technology part of it was the luma crane this yes. giant stiff arm which uh they use to give you that gliding steady cam look i appreciate the effort that went into that but i yeah. mean you could you could still see the wire that that launches the uh the arrow the, the arrow yeah you could you could see the wire that rick's eyeball is being pulled away from and you would oh, think that you would think that they would have maybe tried to camouflage that a little more with all the with the effort they made into they made to use this new technology I think they just, they didn't know how it was going to look, for one. For two, with the polarized 3D that you would have seen in the theaters, everything would have been much darker. And so when you see it now, especially in 2D, Mm. the things that might have faded away, like the wire on the snake in the first scene, or the the wire that, the guide wire for the uh, spear in the where vera's death scene is or paul's eye later on i'm sorry rick's eye excuse me i just i'm conflating my giant meatheads together between (laughs) paul and rick i agree with gina i appreciate the effort that they went through to make this sort of new and exciting but because it's so staged, yes, everyone becomes even more paper thin. And we're looking at two of the worst examples of that. Because while I agree with you, Phil, that Andy has his good points, there's also a vibe about Andy that I get that just says to me, the next door neighbor kid who is teasing you in junior high about you peeing your pants in kindergarten still. He just seems mischievous, but not in a fun way to me. And maybe part of that is his constant attitude towards Debbie, which is basically a vagina delivery system. And we're not the only ones who notice this because Chris, when they exit the van, when they're all first introduced in that let's meet everyone all at the same time scene, when they're picking up Vera, Chris looks over at them and says, sex, sex, sex. Is that all you're going to be doing this weekend? She knows this. Why is she even asking the question? Yeah, that's what they're in this movie to do, Chris. They got one job. Okay, but I'll give him, I'll give him credit as a as how old do you think this guy's supposed to be well he's supposed to be college age i'm assuming college age guy doesn't seem phased in the least that his girlfriend's pregnant he's like all right i'm on board let's go hang out (laughs) like and i'm like you know what you're okay like you could you could you could have a much worse attitude towards this whole thing than uh than andy does you know he could he's not freaking out about it he's not he doesn't seem concerned and he hasn't tried to run off, you know, like 
for a for a college guy in the early 1980s. I'm going to I'll give him a point for that one. Absolutely. And, you know, Debbie can say, Papa, don't preach at me all she wants. It's her right. But I do have to wonder what she thinks about Andy in terms of solid dad material, because I get why they're together. But adding an additional person to that relationship that isn't Chris for a three-way seems outside of Andy's lane. He's definitely going to be the the fun dad, the kind of, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll teach the kid how to juggle and do handstands, but... Is that why he's practicing everything? Is that why he's, like, trying to get Shelly to teach him how to... Like, he's like, I've got to be a good dad. I've got I've to be able to show this kid the world. And you, Shelly, are like my... You're going to teach me how to be a fun dad. Like, is that the subtext going on here? It's all about Andy, like, just trying to be a good father. I think we can read that into it, but I don't think that was their intention. I'll tell you that right now. Yeah, and Andy's the type of type of, type of of dad who, if his kid's like 12 or 13, he goes up to the smacks on the back of the head and says, Hey, getting any kid? You know, one of those types of, what are those types of, uh, the, the fun dad, the, uh, you know, the dad, the, the, the dad that takes his son to a strip club for his 18th birthday and, you know, announces to everybody, this is my son, he's 18, give him a free lap dance. And he'll eventually be, he'll eventually be weekend dad. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are, there are many visits to McDonald's Playlands in, 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 in this young man's future. <laughs> Yeah, there's going to be a lot of barren apartment visits in that kid's future. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. No, there's not. A future. None of these people have a future. Aww. <laughs> they, they have a very playful, fun-ish relationship that primarily revolves around goading one another into constantly having sex. And listen, I ain't going to shame them for it. Good on you. But they don't seem to have a ton in common beyond that. Debbie is displaying absolutely no signs of pregnancy whatsoever. In fact, she's in such good shape that she is the recipient of the Steve Miner butt shot in this yes. particular episode. Steve very focused on making sure a butt shot appears in all of his movies, especially the Friday the 13th movies. And that makes it all the weirder because Tracy Savage, the actress who plays Debbie, I mostly know her from her local reporting here in Los Angeles. She was on site for the O.J. Simpson trial. So she was always reporting on that from the moment it started until the end of the civil trial. Well, and she and, was forced to reveal her sources, wasn't she? That was like, yeah. she was the one who was one of the reporters who was going to be held in contempt if she didn't uh, like name sources during the trial. It, well, that the entire system was leaking like a sieve. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what they they stabbed at a whole bunch of different things uh not to put too fine a point on it um <laughs> for poor tracy uh yeah it's it's kind of crazy but i look at her as it, it would be like seeing your high school civics teacher naked in a shower yeah and looking at her in a lurid way makes me feel weird <laughs> so let's get to i suppose their denouement we have been treated to their consternation about how do we have sex in a hammock, which, you to be honest with you, you I'm you legitimately wondering how you do that with a guy on top. I don't know how that's possible in any form or style, or I just don't see how that doesn't end in disaster and, and, and somebody falling out and hitting their head on the floor. 
Yeah, are there are there hammock based cultures? Like, is there a culture that figured this out, or like hammocks always just for like relaxing? Like, is there in history has there been like a people who know we are entirely hammock based and we have like we have to reproduce in our hammocks? Well, I think if I mean like you know maybe if the hammocks were extended over a chasm or or a, like a lava pool, <laughs> I mean you know if you got to get it on just. Go on the ground and do it. I mean, you know, don't try to precariously balance yourself on, you know, some crisscross ropes attached to a tree. I mean, I realize that's a very romantic image, but I, I think it's one of those things where, where you know, the, the reality is just something that ends up on a sort of X-rated America's Funniest Home Videos. Well, to Andy's credit, he is praised by Debbie. As that particular lovemaking session being the best one so far. Of course it but is. But we also don't know how many shots he's had at it. So Obviously at least one before that. <laughs> yeah, at least one. <laughs> at least we, one. We do also know how many shots they're going to have at it later. Zero. <laughs> <laughs> so in the uh, afterglow of this record-breaking lovemaking session... Uh, Debbie goes off to shower. Andy wanders in to give us some sort of faux psycho vibe, which doesn't quite work. There's not a lot of tension in the scene. Anyways, he comes in again on his hands to prove he can do, he can walk on his hands, damn it. This is something he can do. And asks, Debbie, do you want anything to drink? Because I'm going downstairs to get something. She responds with, yeah, I'll have a beer. He gets into the hallway, and that's when he discovers that he's not alone in that hallway. And he is... How would you describe his injury? Uh, Bisected? Sure. I'll take bisected. It doesn't... The end results certainly look bisected. That particular gag where Jason brings a machete down... Uh, on his crotch looks like it ends about three inches below his crotch sort of looks like like it's it's a it's a below shot yeah they built a plexiglass floor it it does look like the well it would be the way it's the way it's angled the the lower half of his body which is upside down um kind of collapses but then like then but then it's an over it's a regular shot and he's still intact for yeah yeah, for for lack of a better way of putting it but then you know later he's obviously in two pieces that 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 below angle is very weird i was gonna say can i not clear this up in any way sure you want to make it more complicated i'm gonna make this more complicated i'm just gonna i brought this with me this is the the brief description of it from the friday the 13th part three novel oh (laughs) this is how it's described it's very uh, quick. Please continue. Okay, there were two novels of this, by the way. It was adapted <laughs> twice. This is from, oh, I believe... Wait, wait, wait a slow, slow down. This happened twice? This, I can this, believe once, but there you're telling two, me there, there are two are different versions two of Two distinct novelizations of Friday the 13th Part 3. I believe it's the only one that got two adaptations. Do you know the di- what are the differences, just kind of briefly? Cause that's- They're substantially different. Uh, the The first one is one of those, like, I'm going to try to make this more of a thing. The second one is more just, I'm describing what happens on screen. Like, if you want to know more about that couple from the beginning of the movie, oh boy, you get some backstory there. 
uh, that is not backstory that I want any access to. <laughs> but no, here's the, the more yeah. the mystery that those two remain, the better <laughs> off I am. I'm going to give you a hint. They're not a happy couple. Here is Get out. A, here is Andy's here's Andy's death. I I believe this is the first adaptation. And this makes even less sense than what we see on screen. Are you ready? Yes. I'm ready. Before Andy could react, the glistening blade came down in a savage, powerful arc. The blade sliced through Andy's upside-down body, literally halving him where he stood. The ghastly scream that bolted from the young man's throat seemed to reverberate throughout the house as his mutilated remains toppled down the spiral staircase, bouncing and bumping all the way. Jason retrieves the body. What spiral staircase? <laughs> there is a spiral staircase. And and if his scream reverberated throughout the house, how could she have not heard it? Well, I don't even and remember because a spiral Chuck staircase. and Chili are at the bottom of that this, staircase. You're right. I, I know they're they're stoned and asleep, but they're not that stoned and asleep that they might have missed a scream, but I don't think they would miss uh, a halved body lipping and lopping down a spiral metal spiral staircase. And that shower is not I'm that loud. Mentally blocking out the staircase. I don't know why. No, it's it's she just has to be like a... standard being power washed by somebody to not hear to not hear someone <laughs> screaming as they're being cut in half. Yeah. So according to the book, the body falls all the way down the stairs. Jason drags it back up the stairs. It says there was no indecision in the monster at all. He carried the corpse back to the bedroom while Debbie was still showering. I like that. There's no indecision. Like you think. Right. Eh, Maybe I want to leave it at the bottom of the stairs, or maybe I want to store it like Christmas decorations up on these rafters. Nope, I'm going to go with the rafters. This movie really is like really focused on Jason hiding these bodies or propping them up, like rigging them to be discovered. That's like his big, that's his MO throughout this whole film is these bodies like get stashed places and then discovered at really inopportune moments or opportune moments, I guess. And you see Jason in this movie, he's moving a lot more like deliberately. You see him like kind of making decisions and reacting to things a lot more than you're used to seeing Jason. You get it's more of a feeling that this is just this is a guy like he's just a guy and he's doing things to screw with people. Right. And we talked about the big difference between the Friday 13th part two, Jason, who was basically just this. He was like the he was like I compare it to like the Peacock family in in in, in X Files, where mm, yeah. he just he was just you know living in a shack in the woods, and the only time he showed any sort of you know real skill for stalking anybody was was with Alice at the beginning. But other than that, he was just sort of opportunistically killing anybody who just happened to be in his path. Whereas here, as you say, he's set traps. Apparently, he has gained some sort of savvy, I guess, and and it's uh, you know it's it's kind of a, a very jarring difference from the second movie or something. And he somehow gets Andy's body up in the rafters, like while Debbie's just taking a shower, without making a mess on the floor. This is the thing that makes me nuts. Yeah, Phil, you're absolutely right, and I understand they're trying to recreate the elements of the original uh, Kevin Bacon death. Yes, in a, a semi more realistic way. This entire thing is built around getting the bed actually higher off the ground, uh -huh. so that it's more realistic that someone can jab a hunting knife through your chest plate. Spoiler alert, that's how Debbie dies. Yeah, but is it really realistic that someone could hide under a hammock? <laughs> oh, you mean the 
You mean the backwoods mutant that would probably you could smell from half a mile away? No. It's not even a bed. It's a hammock. To to paint a picture for the audience, he has dragged a halved body into a cabin bedroom, a small bedroom, stashed it in the rafters above a hammock. All right, without creating a mess, without jostling anything in the room, he's put a halved human torso without creating a blood trail or anything hidden under a hammock. In a way that he's remains unseen to the person who comes out of the bathroom and lays down in the hammock, it, waiting the entire time, a giant hulking man, so he can push a knife up through the person's body. It's there is if you pulled the camera back like three feet, you would see a giant man laying under this this suspended bedding. <laughs> he can't have snuck into the hammock. And, and it's like- nuts. Yeah, and 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 you you have this body who is that is cut in half, and only dripped a little bit of blood, just just enough to get someone's agreed? attention. So I I agree with you both. The idea that this is somehow the most bloodless killing, slicing someone in half, basically separating their legs at the hip joint where your crotch is, and and opening them up like you're a frog about to be fricasseed and you get a couple drops of blood that happen at just the right time is insane. Almost as insane as a 23-year-old mother-to-be picking up a Fangoria to read for no well, fucking reason. Well, now come, now come on. I, I read Fangoria when I was in my 20s. I don't know if I read it when I was pregnant, but... You could have done serious damage if you had gotten frightened while reading that magazine. You know, I, I, may, you know, I may have given birth to a deformed child if I had read that full expose on how sleepwalkers was made (laughs) doesn't isn't she reading an article on tom savini yeah well that's the first thing she turns to the second is a uh review of the 25 years of godzilla that's That's great that's what interests her that's what brings her in is gaiju i love her she's great (laughs) oh i have no problem with debbie debbie's delightful in fact, I, I do almost have a all the women in this movie are. It's the dudes that I have a serious problem with. I do have a question. Do you think, because they, they bring up the pregnancy in the beginning and they don't really touch on it again, do you think that they did that as a misdirect for the audience? We've wondered this over and over again in each movie, whether or not they've set up a separate person to sort of switch them up what the final girl might be. The belief is that they can't go that far, I think was the feeling they were attempting to evoke. It's so easy to forget that she's supposed to be pregnant. Uh, it was probably a taboo right up until Inside came out. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, and I that, mean, even, even, even the Predator doesn't kill pregnant women. I mean, come it, on. <laughs> and, and what is Jason but, but the Ur Predator? <laughs> Listen, Predator has a lot of intelligence going on, but he also has some limitations. Jason has no limitations. I was going to say, I think that's what separates the Friday the 13th series from your more uh, grindhousey horror films of the late 70s and early 80s. Like, they realized they were making product for teenagers, for... They were making a more family-friendly, if I can say that, product than like your your just your gore masters and the people who weren't trying to achieve mainstream success. Like they knew they had a product. I would say that is true up until a point, but we are about to go through two examples of where that doesn't happen because I don't think there's a more brutal Friday the Thirteenth movie. 
then part four, the final chapter. I guess. It, it The very ending contains a, a very long scene in which a person begs for help because they're dying. That happens in part four. And it's it's brutal. That whole thing is punishment. And so I would say for this, it's more hokum. It's a sideshow. It's fun time. Whereas part four, I think they got they decided to get serious mm. and which is probably one of the reasons why it's one of the better better ones, Friday yeah. the 13th or you go the other direction part six that's fun because it's pure fun right and i don't know that part four is pure fun it's a little too sadistic to be uh to, to be fun yes it's certainly where the the scariest that it, it really ever gets intentionally whereas i feel there are parts of part two and the original that are scary because of conditions they could not control, like lighting. Mm. When people wander off into the dark and you can't see them, you know that that's the way a, a night would occur if you're stuck in the middle of New Jersey by a lake with no lights, you're surrounded by woods, you're alone, and it sort of gives you that you're caught in the middle of space feel. Whereas Everything in part three has to be lit within an inch of its life because otherwise you wouldn't see anything because the 3D camera requires so much light to be able to get it through both lenses. That is, I'm surprised that characters don't gain tans over the course of the movie <laughs> because there are so much light being shown on them constantly. And so we are now to that point of this particular uh, session where we ask, would you rather, <laughs> would you rather be sliced in half while standing on your hands or stabbed through the sternum with a hunter's knife on a hammock? I open the floor to first, ladies first, to Gina. Well, I, I would love to be able to do handstands. So, I mean, if I had that ability, I, I certainly wouldn't mind going out in such a manner. Um... And you figure it's probably a little bit of a, uh, as as mentioned before, I'm I'm rather a wuss and and don't don't like pain, so I think he probably had the quicker death than Debbie. Um, you know, once you uh, you know once you're cut in half, you're uh, you're blinking out pretty fast. So I'm gonna have to go with uh, I'm gonna have to go with Andy's, with, Andy. uh, with Andy's death. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, you know, I. The idea of you doing handstands sounds delightful to me. So I think that's sound reasoning. It, it, it Phil, does, doesn't it? It does. It holds up in court. <laughs> Phil, uh, I now cede the floor to you. Would you rather die standing on your hands, being split in half, or have a hunting knife shoved up through your sternum while resplendent on a hammock? The notion that I'd be walking on my hands and would run into this machete-wielding killer, and the last thought that went through my head would be, this is the stupidest way I could possibly die, almost pushes me into the hammock because I'm look kicking back. I'm so distracted by the fact that I'm reading an awesome horror gore magazine that I glance up and I see horror gore and then I get a knife shoved through my back and I'm like, I'm living the dream. Like I'm living it. Like this is, 
This is exactly what I wanted. I'm reading a Fangoria, staring at gore, and and being made into that which I read about. Like I'm like it's a, it's like this like perfect synthesis of elements. Like like the the observing, the the uh like the input, and like the being. I'm uh, I'm I've become uh, transcendent. I am the perfect being. I'm a perfect human now. Like I am ready to go. I've done all I have been called onto this earth to do. So yes, I think I'd rather die in the hammock. So let just to review very quickly, audience. Both Gina and Phil have decided to die in ways in which they can live out their dreams, <laughs> <laughs> um, rather than than base their death on their fears. Like I'm going to, I am going to go for. Uh, knife through the hammock only because i don't see that coming and that's pretty much going right through the heart she is not lasting long uh debbie is not long for this earth after that so to me i think that's the way i want to go out plus i just want to be in the body of tracy savage for a little while just a little while not forever it's not a forever thing if you're talking about my dream just being tracy savage for like you know, an afternoon in a hammock. Sure. <laughs> I have to point out real quick before we wrap up that um, yes. I'm looking at the uh, the wiki, as I often do during most episodes of this, and I have the feeling this is written by someone who adds a lot more plot to these movies than they really, than they really indicate, because it shows here that um, it claims on the page for Debbie that uh, her corpse... And the upper and lower parts of Andy were buried in the same coffin. Oh, and, and I'm like, I'm is that not- legal? Can you do that? <laughs> it's it's romantic. Yeah, it, uh, it's illegal, but it is romantic. It, it also just kind of suggests that that you know Debbie is carefully, lovingly placed into a casket, and then Rick's parched and is kind of tossed on right. top of her. Like, yeah, well, well they're both halves. They're, they're, they're not animals. They're throwing both the top and the and the yeah. bottom half in there. You know, they didn't, like, sew them back together or anything. No, no, no. <laughs> Listen, as long as you got both halves in there, that's what counts. That's what they teach you in the burying people game. As long as you got both halves of that body in there, <laughs> you're golden. Just funeral check school. it off the list. Uh, oh boy! So that brings us to the end of yet another glorious kill by kill. Uh, before we go, Phil, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, I have a podcast called Deep in Bear Country, a Berenstain Bear cast, where I go through the Berenstain Bear series book by book, uh, a little bit at a time. And you can find me at berenstainbearcast.wordpress.com fantastic gina how about yous um i write about 70s and 80s television at tuneintonight.wordpress.com fantastic hey if you're listening to us right now there's a couple things that you could do if you're like hey i i have something to say about this first of all you can reach out to us on twitter at kill by kill pod or our gmail account which is kill by kill pod at gmail.com surprise surprise uh, please rate and review us on iTunes if you get a chance. That will help us reach more people, and you'll be that guy who's like, oh, I listened to that a long time ago. I'm glad that you finally got on board. And who doesn't want to be smug in that situation? And that is pretty much it. Thanks once again for joining us, and until next time, 
uh, if you're going to have sex in a hammock, you know, talk don't. it out with your partner first. Figure it out. Or, or don't. just leap into it. Just, or don't. Just, just go on the floor like a person. <laughs> go on the, on the floor like a person. We Hashtag. started with bathroom talk. We ended with bathroom Hashtag talk. go on the floor. <laughs> like a person. You have to fill it out. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's it, everybody. Bye-bye. Kill by Kills, produced by We Write Good, and is intended for entertainment purposes only. Friday the 13th is owned by Paramount Pictures. Jason is owned by New Line Cinema. No infringement is intended. Kill by Kill logo was designed by Josh Hollis. Visit him at joshhollis.com. The Kill by Kill theme was created exclusively for us by Revenge Body. Get the whole track and much, much more at revengebodymemphis.bandcamp.com today.